Chapter 2 When John called these cases an onion with many layers, he wasn't lying. Every turn took me to another theory, another clue, another dead end. Just when you think you might know what happened, think again. And as John peels back the layers, he too tends to waver in his many plausible ideas about what could have happened to Mary and Diane. Each day, a new theory drifts into his thoughts. Two days a week, two and a half days a week, I am totally convinced that Mary's sitting in her car and a predator, just a lone predator, happened to look at her. Maybe there was something sparked, her look, her figure, her height, her hair, something sparked. He grabbed her, he took her off, he assaulted her, he brought her back, he starts getting nervous. He thought, now what am I gonna do? He happens, he's, he's from North Carolina, just a coincidence, and there are coincidences in law enforcement, very few, but, but that is very possible. He took her up there, he, and on the way, she's saying, my family has money. My family has money. He's going to go up there and try and get some money. They drive up to the house and see it's just a very middle-class, modest house. He gets furious. He murders her. He buries her in North Carolina. Two and a half days, I am convinced that is the most logical. And when you read the reports, towards the end of it, towards the end of their lives, Jack per Lieutenant Jack Perry, uh, Special Agent Jim Ponder, were, would tell everyone that's exactly what happened. It was a lone predator. He's done this before. He did it. He's, he's done it. Done it before. He's done it since then. Nobody's made the connection because reports are reporting at the time, and data. There's no such thing as databases. So that guy got away with it to this point. That's two and a half days. The other two and a half days of my life that I think about it, I am absolutely convinced that something in her past, the uh, her her employment. So she knew something, and it was a it was a a signal. To for the other people at, at, in, in that world to keep their mouths shut. She, they, they did exactly the same thing. He took, he took her off, he assaulted her, he took her to North Carolina. That I'm a little unclear, but he, I'm telling you, those gas receipts are hers. That's her signature. And, and a lot of people find some fault on the gas attendant's memory. You won't remember, but you'll, you'll remember a woman sitting in the car with blood on her head and this guy acting really weird. That's going so that's, that's what it was. It had something to do with her past and she was, she was, it was a hit. It was an assassination to keep her mouth shut. And then the second murder was certainly, well, they didn't get the first message. They're going to get the message the second time. Diane Shield was murdered and stuffed in that trunk and the, the way that she was murdered uh, was a signal. You better keep your mouth shut about everything that you know or, you, or, or you're going to end up like that. I'm convinced. One day, and then, okay, so we have five days. We got two to go. One, I don't have a clue. None of it makes sense. Every I've told everybody, every time, and I'm not a 30-year investigator, but I was a cop. I've lived this, I've lived this story for 53 years. That's, There's a lot right. of layers to these cases. It, it is, it is, it is 16,000 layers. Yes, ma'am. Do you believe in coincidences? Being a police officer, no. There are no coincidences. No, ma'am. Zero. Zero. Because there's a there's a whole lot of uh, similarities between the two cases, and to believe that they're not related in some way seems impossible to me. Because there's too many coincidences. You know, one maybe two things that are kind of but there's a lot of connections between the two. From 11alive.com, Tegna Media, and the Gone Cold series, I'm Jessica Knoll. This is five roses.
after scouring through police files and case notes, and I'm talking thousands of pages, reading interviews with police by those who knew her best, I got to know Mary Shotwell Little. She's slender with light brown hair, hazel eyes, and a fair complexion. She's basically the quintessential girl next door. She's a smoker. She likes reading, dancing, and movies. Her life seems pretty simple. Her disappearance, on the other hand, would be a whole other story. In fact, right before she vanished forever, she received roses at work from an unknown admirer. But more on that later. Mary was born in Greensboro, North Carolina on January 14, 1940. In 1962, after graduating from the University of North Carolina, she moves to Atlanta to work in the banking industry, specifically Citizens and Southern National Bank, known as CNS Bank. She makes about $385 a month. She lives with some fellow bank girls, Sandra Green and Judy Brownlee, and teacher Martha Mahaffey. She starts dating Roy Little Jr. in November 1964, and by December, they're going steady. In fact, by Christmas, they decide they want to marry. On September 4, 1965, she marries Roy in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the newlyweds return to Georgia to live in their Decatur apartment. Retired journalist Jardine Dyer knows Mary pretty well, at least on paper. After all, he researched her extensively for a story. Wrote a piece about it on the internet in 95 and then persuaded the paper some years later to let us investigate it. So we, we were able to catch up with some of the people before they died. But he also remembers Mary from his childhood. He was 15 when she disappeared and it was big news. It was a much uh, simpler media environment then around Atlanta and it was the big story. Uh, now, I, it was, took me years to find out much about her, or, but, but everybody saw the picture. The picture was everywhere in the newspapers and in you know, television reports. And, uh, so, and we heard the basic, she disappeared from Lenox Square, which there weren't a lot of malls back then either, so that was the mall. I meet Geraldine in a Gwinnett County library, his neck of the woods. He's a sixth-generation Gwinnett County dweller, but not your typical redneck, as he puts it. His crooked silver glasses rest on his nose, and as he talks, he readjusts them on his brow, then smooths his fluffy gray beard, which matches his wild, free-flowing hair. We settle into a quiet corner of the library, where he can tell me more about what he knows about Mary and her case. You look at it, it's, it's not your normal case. And, and she, um, one of the details I put in here, she, she uh, for one thing, her husband was gone which not everybody in the world would know. It was kind of a lucky coincidence for a criminal. He, he, was, he was just going to grab her at random, that, that he's grabbing a woman who's, who, for the first time in years, is, is nobody would look for her that night. She'd lived in a room with other women for years, and then she marries him, and she's been married to him six weeks. And then for this one, I guess this was the third day, he left on a Monday to LaGrange, and he was going to come back Friday. And uh, so she was, nobody would know if she didn't get home that night. I mean, maybe it is coincidence, but it's kind of odd. 
He refers to notes he wrote down in preparation for our interview. A lot of coincidences. Yeah, yeah, a lot of coincidences, yeah. Mary's husband, Roy, leaves for his business trip on Monday, October 11th, 1965, where he's conducting an audit for CNS Bank. On Tuesday, he speaks to Mary on the phone. It's the last time he will ever speak to his wife. But some things would begin to unravel as time drew closer to her demise. On October 11th, Peggy Fritz later tells police that she was at CNS Bank to hand in an application for a job. She overhears Mary say, please leave me alone, I'm a married woman now. Two days later, Janie Thornton, a bank customer, overhears Mary on the phone at the bank saying, Roy's out of town, you know I'm not coming over there. And the following day, the day Mary disappears, a saleswoman from the Five and Dime store at Lenox Square says she knows Mary personally and says that Mary told her the biggest mistake she ever made was getting married. On Thursday, October 14th, Mary makes plans to have dinner with her friend and co-worker, Isla Stack. She cashes a $25 check and leaves the CNS office at 4.45. She stops by Colonial Grocery Store at Lenox Square for some food. She's expecting company this weekend. A store clerk helps Mary load her groceries into her car and she tips him 10 cents. She meets up with Isla for dinner at SNS Cafeteria at 6.15 and the two shop at Rich's department store, finishing around eight. Isla and Mary go their separate ways in the parking lot. Both are parked in the lower level. And Mary vanishes. Now, Mary Shotwell Little is known to police as case file number AT-79-159. To the public, she's known as the missing bride, or at least that's what splashes across the headlines in both local and national newspapers for months following her disappearance. On Friday, October 15th, Mary doesn't show up for work. Her boss, Gene Rackley, calls her apartment, but no one answers. He goes to her apartment and the property manager lets him in to check on her. It's unusual for Mary to be late to work and not call, but she's not home. At noon, her boss goes to Lenox Square looking for her car. He finds a security guard on a sidewalk outside SNS Cafeteria to help him look. At 12.15, they discover her gunmetal gray 1965 Mercury Comet in row 32 of the yellow parking lot. The security guard opens the unlocked car door and sees a bra on the floor and blood stains on the seat. He calls the Atlanta Police Department. Red dust has settled on the exterior of the car. One small latent fingerprint is lifted from the steering wheel, a fingerprint that was made by a finger with blood on it. However, the print isn't clear enough to make a comparison according to APD's identification division and therefore remains unknown. Her purse, raincoat, and jewelry are missing, but they find her clothes neatly folded in the console with blood spots on them including the dark olive green dress adorned with little white flowers that she was seen wearing. In the pile of folded clothing, they also uncover a black slip, white lace panties, a white girdle, and a nine inch piece of pantyhose cleanly cut from foot to hose. There are four bags of groceries in the back seat, and there's a considerable amount of blood smeared over the entire surface of both front seats. There's a soft drink bottle on the floor, 
a Coke bottle under the driver's seat, and an empty pack of Kent's cigarettes on the dashboard of the passenger side, containing the remnants of an emptied ashtray. There are parking claim tickets issued between 8 and 9.30 a.m. inside. But the car stuff has confused a lot of people. I see some of the people talking on the internet about it. They, they, but her car would never, never, her car clearly didn't leave Atlanta area, but it was, it was gone from London Square. And if the guy, I mean, the, the police theory was that the man took her, uh, forced her into her car, drove her somewhere nearby, sexually assaulted her, injured her, then took her back, and then took off in the car he'd stolen, whatever, car X, with a stolen license plate on it, and then took her up into North Carolina and then vanished. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that could have happened except where was the car? But her car was gone. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and it, you know, Roy, the police made a lot, Roy, police did not like Roy Little, but they made a lot of the fact that he was very um, meticulous about keeping track of, and he, he talked to them about how much mileage should have been on the car. He was, he sounds like he was a bit of a tightwad. A uh, controlling. He was a little bit controlling, but presumably she liked that. Mm -hmm. So maybe she, she was, and I, I note in here about her being a sloppy housekeeper, which is, not something I would normally think is worth mentioning, uh, except as I, the bit about the meat, she left the meat in her car. But the woman, Isla Stack, who talked to her said, they talked about that. Mary said, it's okay, I'll leave the meat in the car. Mm -hmm. And some people said she was, she could be kind of a sloppy housekeeper. Some of the older women at the bank volunteered that. I guess they'd visited her and they thought, I think she just doesn't really, keep her house as clean as she should. And, you know, it's, it's petty gossip, really. But I, the, the, the only reason I mention it is that uh, when Roy said the house was a mess when we got there, uh, but he didn't think anybody had been there, back there that night, uh, that it was, that, that was consistent with, and that could have been one of the reasons she quarreled with her female. The car, her car, was, you know, initially the police told the public, the police theorized that her car had been brought back that morning. It wasn't found that night in Lenox Square. Uh, it was not, and, and we've seen the diagrams. You may have a copy of them, but they were they had they had logs and actually diagrams of places that were checked out at Lenox Square. No, nobody was supposed to park there overnight, so they would go through the lot, and it was mostly open then. They didn't have those covered. Mm -hmm. It was open lots. It was much more of a it was not the kind of fancy place it is now. It was, it was a grocery store was a big part of it. It was big, but but they would check out, and if there was a car there, they would ticket it, make make note of it, and uh, and there were cars very near where hers was, hers was spotted the next morning. They were ticketed. There was no indication that hers was there. So the police said uh, she uh, she apparently her car apparently was brought back that morning. Uh, and because they still assumed <coughs> she'd been kidnapped, maybe raped and killed there, and they would find her body in a five-mile radius. That's what they assumed. This was some kind of local predator. Um, so they were, they were, but they were going on the theory that this person or somebody brought the car back. But then once they found those receipts in North Carolina, and they knew that she was definitely far from 
Atlanta. They just said, nope. Guess it, guess it wasn't, wasn't that way. I guess it wasn't returned. Uh, I guess it was just there all night. Jardine and his reporting partner, Pat Coaster, analyzed her car's whereabouts and wonder, was this a random attack that could have happened to anyone at Lenox Square that night? As I noted here, and I love to quote myself, because I, but it, I said it's the, uh, one of the most thoroughly documented pieces of evidence in the case was thrown out. Uh, I mean, it, it was this under this thing about uh, the, car, the car that nobody saw. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I may get a little snarky in this particular paragraph, but they just said, well, that's not uh, And this was the thing that Pat latched onto and always was talking to me about. That's the most, of, of all these things with kind of, kind of sketchy memories, this was documented where people going around and making notes and different shifts of people going around and looking for her car. Well, they weren't looking for her car. They were just looking for any cars and not noticing her car. Why not? If it, so it really looks, if her car was brought back, then somebody was still in Atlanta who had access to her car. So was it, I guess it could be random, but it seems much less likely a random crime. Taking a page out of Cheryl McCollum's CSI book, I go back to the scene of the crime with John Fedak. Ground Zero the beginning of Mary's story, Lenox Square. A lot has changed. Riches is now Macy's, and the parking lot's light poles now include cameras to keep a close eye on what happens on the perimeter of the mall, day and night. In the light of day, the parking lot is a thoroughfare of cars coming and going. That's where John, a former police officer himself, hands me a piece of paper and points. This is where her car was found. I wanted to start with, you You gave me this map. This is from, I believe, the FBI. Atlanta Police. Is Atlanta Police case file. That's correct. That kind of diagrams where we're at and what we're looking at now. Here we have Riches, which we know Mary shopped at that night. That night. And that is now the Macy's. Yes. And then down further, we have the Colonial store, which she went- Over that away. Which she went grocery shopping there. Yep. For a dinner party in, for the next night or so. The, the upcoming weekend. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. So tell me in terms of parking, so we got Riches and then the Colonial store. Mm-hmm. In terms of parking, where are we in relation to where she had parked originally? From the diagram and from the reports, Mary, Mary's car was left Last time anybody saw it was at around 8 o'clock that night when she's uh, leaving the shopping area with her girlfriend, Elsa. And as I can tell from the thing, it would probably be about where that white car is. Probably three, three lanes over and about halfway up. And so she comes out to her car, girlfriend waves, gets in her car, there's groceries in the back, uh, some shopping stuff, and that's the last time till the next morning, I'm, I'm sorry, till around lunchtime when the car that was there is now probably almost where that white car is, the, the second white car. And I think the report said when the officer came from where they pointed to, there was 22 spaces 
the car had been moved 22 spaces. How would they know that the car moved from over here 20 spaces this way? Because her girlfriend was walking with her. Husband's out of town. So Mary is kind of at odds and a little lonely and a little, and the weekend is coming. So she and her girlfriend planned to go to SNS Cafeteria and have dinner, then go shopping. And as never, that I haven't found any reports, but the logical thing, then they went to the grocery store because she had frozen food and cold food. So arms are loaded up. And so they, Ilsa's car was somewhere, but she saw Mary walking this way and would have, would have been able to see Marianne's 1965 Comet parked like, like where that white car is. So she would have been a point of reference and, and verify where the car was. So uh, the next morning, Mary, Mary does not show up for work. Um, everybody starts getting a little nervous. The morning keeps going and going. They call her um, apartment. There's no answer. So car is found over there. Right, right. Groceries are in there. And then, as you know, uh, her personal belongings, her purse is missing, the car keys are missing. Um, and then everybody gets very upset and then, then the, the process starts. Blood found in the car. Blood, blood, blood found in the car. Uh, blood, I believe, it on the headrest. Blood against the window. Blood against the uh, door panel. Uh, blood on the steering wheel with a fingerprint in the steering wheel. And there was blood in the car. There was blood in the car. At the time, there was, of course, no DNA, but it was Mary's type, so the assumption is, is Mary's blood. There was blood on, on the headrest that had been smeared. Uh, there was uh, blood on the um, door, ha uh, door jam. There was blood in the window, uh, against the window. There was little specks in there, and also there was a bloody fingerprint on the steering wheel, which to my knowledge has never been identified. And with the technology we have today, if there was a bloody fingerprint on the steering wheel, we'd have a lot more answers, I would think, um, in terms of... You know, there's a national database, APHIS, so they could they could run it. And if this person ever had a uh, job interview fingerprinted, a criminal record, military record, that fingerprint, that fingerprint would pop up. For 53 years, I'd say for 52 years, everybody had, had said, and there were report after report after report, some of the reports, some of the files, interviews, physical evidence was gone. If you have blood samples, you have the bloody fingerprint, even the crime scene photos, if you had those from APD, how much further along do you think the task force could be in their investigation? Just having it is better than not having it. But if if we if if the evidence is there and if there's any way to pinpoint or possibly come up a suspect or something like that, it that, that would help tremendously. But just having it is good. But but it, it's just not unless unless the DNA is mixed in and that pops up and their DNA is in a database, which everybody's DNA is in a database now, almost. So so besides the fingerprints, the, the DNA would be a great t search tool if it's there. It was explained to me by the special agent in charge that it's a cold case, it's 52 years old. There's nothing to their knowledge, there's nothing new, there's nothing, there's no reason to open it again. Fresh eyes. I, I, that was my attitude. That's why your task force That's, is together. And I think that is the, the, the frustrating part, not only the 52 years, the going to bed every night and wondering about these two poor girls, not only that, but then the frustration of if there is this treasure trove, possible treasure trove, how can we get access to it? And I don't want to, my gosh, that's not for me. I mean, these detectives, or if the, if, like I said, best of all worlds, best of all worlds, anybody throws sticks at me when I say this, best of all worlds, FBI says, we're taking it, we're open, reopening it, we're taking over. I'll, I, I'm gently will hand them my box and say, Goodbye. Thank you, sir. Yes, but uh, that's, that does not appear to be happening. Why bring the car back? Why not dump it somewhere? Why bring the car back? Why? Why? Well, 
when he brings the car back, where is she? Where is she? Why take her to North Carolina? North Carolina is where some believe Mary was taken after being snatched from the Lenox Square parking lot. Witnesses and receipts put a bloody woman and a gas credit card issued to Mary's husband at two gas stations in North Carolina the night she vanished and the following afternoon, more than 200 miles and four hours away. Why have a living victim in the car for four hours to 20 hours? All they have to do is get a flat tire, get pulled over by the state patrol, get pulled over by a sheriff's department, any, have an accident, and then he's got a victim sitting in the car screaming. Makes no sense. To go off for at least six hours, maybe 10 hours, go f drive 41 miles, odd number, 41 miles, have red dust, so he went down a dirt road, um, bring her bring, bring the car back. Uh, we don't know if she's in the car. We have no idea where she is at this point. So th it has to, it's almost like there has to be two or three people. Unless he's, unless he has some, unless his car is here, he gets her out of the car, he has a gun right into her stomach. He says, you breathe, you breathe the sound, I'm gonna blow your guts out. So she's terrified. So she's already been assaulted. This is, this is the basic assumption, the basic storyline. Brings her out, gets in, her, gets, in, gets in his car, which has a stolen tag from North Carolina. Then he takes her within 30 miles. Oh no, my gosh, I want to say miles of where her home is, where she lived with mom and dad. Makes no sense. Unless there's a jealous lover, some connection to her past, and, and, I, and you read the reports. I've read what I've read the reports. I've read them enough. I'm going to stop reading the things. They, they, they press me. I can't read them anymore. But that doesn't wash out. Then you find the gas receipts up there. That blows everything out, out of the water. Police investigate the two gas receipts that John refers to. They're signed in North Carolina the day after she disappears, seemingly by Mary herself. One is from October 15th between midnight and 2 a.m., it's a Charlotte gas station, and the car has a stolen North Carolina license plate. Witnesses from the gas station tell police they saw a woman laying in the front seat with a road map covering her face, blood on her clothes, and some sort of injury on her head. The woman never left the car. However, the receipt on file is signed by Mrs. Roy H. Little, Jr. The second receipt is for October 15th in the late afternoon. The attendant recalls seeing a man and a woman in the car. The woman was sitting in the front seat with a white and blue striped towel wrapped around her head. When the woman signed the receipt, the station attendant noticed blood on her arm and dress and scratches on her legs. Geraldine Dyer believes it was Mary who signed the gas receipts. And then, of course, they, they, the, the discovery of the gas receipts from North Carolina and she was in presumably she'd been taken to Charlotte which was her hometown now I realize that's you know if you get get on the freeway you know you know 85 up from Atlanta you can wind up in Charlotte in several hours so it's not you know that doesn't necessarily mean that it had anything to do with her being from Charlotte mm -hmm. that, that could that could really could be a coincidence but they kept going into North Carolina and then she did she, did she sign it? It's another, I'm, I'm pointing this little piece of paper, but yeah, I think she signed the receipts. I can't see why anybody else would 
forge her signature. It was her new signature, apparently. You know, she believes her married name. So I think she had rehearsed and she'd gotten Mrs. Roy H. Little Jr. And that was one thing that she, I guess, under whatever duress, she signed this thing. The stuff about the bloody, the bloody women, you know, that's, as a reporter, you know, that's a great detail. I mean, it, it's so appealing as a detail that the, that the, that, she, that, that there's a little blood in the car and then she's bloodier in Charlotte and then she's even bloodier in, but I don't know. You know, it was one of the things we tried to nail down when we went up there to Charlotte. This is 16 years ago. There was only one guy left who had been one of the gas station attendants. And he said, I don't remember that at all. I don't remember seeing any bloody woman. I don't recall talking to police about it. Uh, he said, can't have, been, can't have been as big a thing as they're saying. Or, but it all sounded like something really weird. Like somebody was trying to uh, attract attention. See, I think, and, and, and I, don't, I don't mean to be critical of the police, but I, I, that's what they would have to do in that situation, I think, is once they found these receipts, and they're a month old, people's memories, you know, if you're working at a job and where the public comes and goes, your memories of who was who and when they came in gets a little confused. Mm-hmm. So I, I, don't, I don't think they would go there and say, do you remember a lady who signed Mrs. Roy H. Little Jr.? Because they would say, no, I don't think I do. Well, do you remember a woman with blood on her? Maybe she looked like she'd been cut. Maybe she was with some rough-looking guys and looked, maybe, yeah, yeah well, yeah. And then it gets, and the story gets better. They, they had a second man. And were these, I, I just don't know how real these things were. They, especially at the overnight gas station in 65, there weren't many of those. I suspect they saw a lot of stuff. And, but was it, did it really look like, sometimes the rough people look at, rough looking people come into a place, you know, and maybe a woman's got a cut on her head or a bandage or something. And then do you ask her, are you being kidnapped or you just keep your mouth shut? Maybe she, maybe it's none of your business. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know. So I, I think she signed, but there's always the possibility that she, she was that there was no, there was nothing to notice. It could have been a woman who just looked like she was just quietly signing a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And because all the memories of the bloody woman came later. And people get excited about it. And it is kind of, it's gory and it's, it's dramatic, but I don't know. I don't know if it's real or not. Might be a bit exaggerated. I'm, I'm, don't know, but that's a possibility. Anyway, it took the thing in a whole different direction. The thing was, what happened, the car in North Carolina, nobody, the, the receipts that they took for credit cards back then, of course, they, they didn't do it. They just did it with a little, one of those And it was just mostly you signed something, but there was no computerization. That's why it took them a month to get these receipts back. So the trail was cold, but the, 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 the type of car was kind of, was very generally matching. It wasn't even described. It was the tag. So they would take notice of the tag, that the station would take down the tag. The tag was a stolen tag that had been stolen in North Carolina, which would mean whatever happened to her car in Atlanta, somebody stole a tag in North Carolina just to go into Georgia to bring a woman back into North Carolina. And that's that's an odd thing to do. Um, I mean, if you're just drifting, 
you're, you're drifting through North Carolina, you steal a tag, you put it on, you go down through Georgia, you grab a woman, you proceed to Alabama. I mean, I know stuff like that happens. It seems odd to steal a tag just to make a trip into another state and then come back. Uh, I don't know what that car was. The gas station attendants you know, had various memories of various old junkie. And there was always a junkie old car because uh, their memories were of sketchy looking guys and junky old car and a frightened looking woman with blood on her. And, and I don't know, I'm, I, like I say, maybe some of that was true. But I'm not sure all of that was true. The FBI Charlotte field office analyzes the signatures from the two receipts. They cannot rule out that they are Mary's, but another writer could not be eliminated either. They also examine a piece of paper with the words, help, call the police, I'm being held by, but those results are also inconclusive. Meanwhile, the APD asks the media to put out a story, asking everyone who owns property within a 20 mile radius of Lenox Square to check their property for any items belonging to Mary or for a body. After stories run in the news, witnesses begin coming out in droves, reporting anything suspicious and every lurking man or stink eye from within the time frame when Mary disappeared from Lenox Square. One witness account made them wonder if she had met Mary's abductor. Carol Smitherman tells police that on the same day that Mary disappeared, she noticed a man walking in the same direction as her as she was leaving Rich's department store. As she got to her car, she says, the young, white, very thin male, approximately 5'10", was in her parking area a few spots over. She unlocked her car and got in as he approached the other side of her car with his hand on the door handle. She started her car and looked over at him and said, if you think you're going to get into my car, you're crazy. He knocked on her window and said, your back tire's low. She nodded and drove away. She describes him as wearing a short-sleeved sports shirt and slacks, with brown hair in a crew cut with a straight line across his forehead. After she left Lenox Square, she stopped at a service station. The attendant told her she didn't have a low tire. Police show her photos, but she isn't able to identify the man who approached her. The state crime lab tests the blood found on Mary's car seats, noting that it appeared to be deliberately smeared over the passenger and driver's seats. During this time, the FBI investigates nearly a thousand sex deviants. Police were on the hunt not only for Mary, but also for her assailant. When you read the reports, when, when, Atlanta, when Atlanta police is told by the mayor and everybody and the governor, find out for God's sakes what happened. When they start turning over the rocks, things start climbing out from that no one knew was there. And the most awful, sick, perverse, depraved people, not one, 604 in Atlanta. I mean, they were everywhere. And this underbelly of, of the blackness, the almost the black web, if you will, of, of Atlanta, which is no different from any other city, but it was a very naive, very superficial time. But yes, when they started d digging in and, and talking to these people, no one knew that these people were out walking around. You didn't associate with them. You came to Lenox Square. They didn't dare come to Lenox Square. They'd get chased off. They'd be gone. So th they, there was... There, there, there do was, you think that they were then obviously then at the same time just as quickly trying to put those rocks back on top of that information? Oh, hell yes. God, yes. 
because because that's bad for business. Rocks and what's under the rocks is very bad for business, very bad for moms and dads and little kids that can't sleep at night, and people are are confused and very upset. And Atlanta police and the FBI had better clear it and better clear it quickly. And what is what what have been how many years now? And 53 years later, <laughs> it ain't solved. But police weren't the only ones trying to solve Mary's mystery. Go to the bank for a second. Mm -hmm. um, Mary Mary doesn't show up for work. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, and I want to say pretty early in the process, very early after 8, her boss, we'll talk about him in a little while, became uh, uh, worried, upset, started making phone calls and then I, I'm almost positive the woman that he, she had dinner with was in the office yeah I had dinner with her blah 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 so uh, boss calls uh, the uh, calls Mary's apartment no answer calls the uh, resident manager uh, nope didn't see her didn't see her last night blah, blah. gets gets more excited more upset jumps in his car drives to Linux Square and very quickly about this time her car is located a motorcycle police officer is there. This manager comes up. For for 52 years, I I never could reconcile a young girl not shows up for work. Granted, things are different. Granted, she's very diligent. Granted, she's a hard worker. Didn't say, to me 52 years that bothered me. I mean, she's sick. She went home. She stayed at a girlfriend's house. She's newly married. You know, who knows? Something like that. It just didn't. Something just seemed odd about that. And and then then you throw in. Um, that and then Diane, a few months before she uh, is murdered, she's disappearing for hours at a time. She's being very mysterious. She's being very strange about things. And she shows someone, I'm almost positive it was a business card of the uh, Lieutenant Jack Perry, who was the lead investigator. And she said, Oh, I'm helping him. I'm doing undercover work for him uh, on the Mary Shotwell little thing. Five Roses is produced, narrated, and reported by Jessica Knoll. Joe Flacari co-produced Five Roses. Philip Kish is the digital director. Aaron Peterson is the executive producer. Brendan Keefe is our TV investigator. Joshua Coates created the graphic. And special thanks to Annie Campbell. Five Roses is produced for WXIA-TV, 11alive.com, and Tegna Media, as part of our ongoing digital series, Gone Cold. We are on Twitter and Instagram as Gone Cold. And we have a Facebook page you can join and discuss the podcast and other cold cases. You can read more cold case stories and listen to our upcoming monthly podcast by visiting 11alive.com backslash gone cold. <laughs>